Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing issues. I'm Amy Austin, Senior Reporter at FT Advisor, and today I will be delving into how advisors can help their clients plan for care in later life with Tracy Crooks, an advisor at Quilter Private Client Advisors, and Graham Duffy, a care specialist at Just Group. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. So the government has come under increasing pressure uh, lately to deal with the social care crisis after, you know, what we've seen is years of inaction. And in a speech in late June, um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the government was actually finalising plans to solve the issue. But obviously we are still waiting and this makes it even harder for advisors who need to advise their clients on how to fit care costs into their whole, you know, financial planning. Uh, so, Tracy, I thought we'd start with you and um, just to ask the question, how can advisors help their clients plan for these care costs with much uncertainty going on? Thank you, Amy. It's really important that advisors speak to their clients um, about care and the sort of impending care costs as, as early as possible, really, in, in sort of conversations. Obviously, it's, it's not something that, that you're going to cover in too much detail with your younger clients, but certainly with um, your older clients who are perhaps um, approaching retirement um, and, and looking forward to, sort of to their, um, their later life. Uh, you need to have those conversations with them as early as possible. Nobody really wants to talk about care. Uh, it's, it's not something that you ever want to think about needing. Um, but it is, you know, really important part of building that sort of financial plan for, for the future. Sure. And what are your thoughts, Graham? How how can advisors, you know, get around this? Yes, I, I'd agree exactly with what um, uh, Tracy has said. Um, it, it is a very difficult uh, subject to broach. But the, the way I see it is that if you if you need care and you have assets, it, it is a big financial commitment to make. And And I think perhaps that's the angle to come at it from, you know, People perhaps don't realise, and I, I think there are some stats out there on, uh, and we've done some surveys on how much people think care will cost. It, it's not too far adrift, but, you know, it's, it's, it's big enough for people not to understand what it's going to cost. And clearly the, the part of the country is going to have an effect as well. So in the southeast, for instance, it's a lot more expensive and there's a lot greater proportion of self-funders. People are going to have to self-fund their care. I think it's over 60 percent in the southeast are people that have got assets that mean they're going to, in broad terms, be a self-funder. So um, when when people realise that it's potentially going to wipe out some quite sizable estates in actual fact, you know, a lot of people think, well, the average stay in the can is only about two and a half years. The issue you've got is that self-funders do actually live a bit longer, uh, probably on average about four years. And the issue with the averages is that you don't know if you're going to be one of those people that actually lives for 10, 15, and we, you know, we've got evidence of people living those kind of lengths of time in care, and you can get through some quite sizable estates. And even the media have covered some uh, case studies recently where there was one lady in particular that had got through 850,000. Uh, she had Alzheimer's and she's still alive. So it's just such a huge amount of money. Um, so I think when, when you present that to people and say, you know, it, it can actually, you might think you've got, you know, you've got a few hundred thousand, but actually all of that could go. So people, I find it odd that people, you know, plan around their inheritance tax potential liability, um, perhaps not enough of that as well, but care, people just don't think about it at all. And it can actually wipe everything out down to 14,250 in England. So, um, you know, 
that's the issue, I think. It's the, it is the monetary side. Sure. And obviously there's been, you know, plans moving to like maybe an insurance product for care or, you know, like a care ISA. Um, do you think advisors are kind of a bit wary about um, planning for social care and, you know, the costs that come with it because they're not quite sure about what is going to be available in the future and that might be better for their clients? Well, I think whatever happens, um, the government are not going to pay for everything. And, and even when they talk about things like a cap on the cost of care, it is literally just the physical care that somebody is having. When, when, and and both, both parties accepted this, that when, when they say we'll put a cap on the cost of care, it's the physical care delivered by care assistance. It's not the accommodation and hotel costs in a care home. So when you look at that, if you've got a care home, say, in the southeast that's costing a 1000 a week, you might only find that 300 of that cost is the physical care. So any cap will obviously help, but it's certainly not going to just make, you know, so you don't have to pay for any care yourself. Um, and there's a big disparity between uh, the cost of count, you know, what councils pay for people's care and what people pay privately as well. The, the private sector actually do cross-subsidise, the self-funders cross-subsidise the state effectively. As far as insurance products are concerned, is there used to be a market when you know for pre-funded long-term care insurance. Um, unfortunately, we found because we had a product, um, but we found that um, we did a lot of quotations and things for people, but people wouldn't buy it. They 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 said, "Look, I'd rather spend my money on other things because it's not the most aspirational thing in in, in the world." And I, I don't know what Tracy would think about that in terms of trying to sell an insurance product to somebody that's in there. 50s or 60s or potentially even younger um it's just not the kind of thing it's difficult enough to get people to pay into pensions um let alone you know something for their long-term care in god knows how many years time and whether they will actually need it or not um, yeah absolutely i'd agree graham uh you know we we do sort of talk about um people should be planning for care in the same way as they should be planning for their retirement in the future you know you can't rely on the state pension uh, because that's not going to provide you enough on, in general um to you know sort of satisfy your needs in retirement that may just about cover the bare minimum but yeah. what sort of lifestyle will you have and it's the same sort of thing with care um if uh, if you know if you need or want more than the, the basic minimum then you need you know to fight to fund that in in some form uh, there are um, I, I completely agree that it's very difficult um, to recommend uh, insurance products or at least to for clients to see the benefit of the insurance product because actually they don't want to see themselves ever having to need it um, but you know going forward there there are certainly options and you can have conversations um you know there are annuities so that you can pay a lump sum um up front and that will provide you that it, that um income that will either cover the care or or some you know proceeds towards it um right. or alternatively use your investments along the way um, and it is working with your clients to understand what sort of their preferences and actually what you would recommend to them yeah um it, you know it's thinking about perhaps longevity of uh, their um, their own parents, grandparents, um, you know, whether there's dementia in the family, it's all those sorts of needs as to what kind of care costs you may incur in the future. Yeah, I, I think we, we, we should just, you know, make the distinction between what, what, what I call the pre-funded. So when you're younger and perhaps still healthy, but you are concerned about care in 10, 20, even 30 years time, as opposed to the 
the, the annuity product, which is the product that we have, which is the point of need. So it's the immediate yeah. product. So, um, and, and that's what, um, because I've, I've sort of worked in this market for about 25 years now, and there were, there were, there were you know, those advisors that sell a lot of um, uh, the immediate care plan products that, you know, when I speak to them about, well, what about pre-funded? They say, well, what, you know, what do, do you ever broach that subject? And they say, well, we talk about the possibility of family members needing care, you know, the, the sons and daughters who could well be people in their 50s, you know, and they say, well, what we, we don't need to worry too much. What we'll do is we will buy one of those annuities when, you know, when if we get to the point where we need it, because you're only buying that product if you need the care. Um, so the issue with that is that you don't know what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years time. Will that product still be around? Hopefully it will be, but um, you just don't know. So it's really difficult to know. Do you just put some money aside and, and hope that that money is going to last or you use that money when it comes to it to buy a care annuity? Um, yeah, it, I, you know, it's from an advisor perspective, it's probably quite a, you know, it, well, it is a very difficult subject, A, to broach and then to to really come up with the answers unless you leave it and feel that potential for point of need when, when the actual individual does need it and say, then please come and talk to us at that point. And then you can make sure that they're getting everything they're entitled to from the state. You can check the continuing health care possibility, make sure the local authority are doing their job properly and all that sort of stuff. So. So quite a bit of a process for the advisor to deal with in actual fact when, when you get to that point. Sure. I mean, I've seen many advisors that have, you know, they really are a bit, you know, nervous when it comes to planning for care because they they just can't, you know, it's a very, very difficult subject and they're not sure what the best options are. So do you think that we need more advisors that are like specialising in social care in order to help clients? Uh, you have to have, um, you do have to have the sort of specific um, qualifications, appropriate qualifications to advise. I think it's, um, you're, you're right, it's going to become a bigger need um, going forward. I mean, perhaps we're at the stage now, um, you know, and we talk about, uh, you know, clients at this point, um, they've got kind of more investable assets than they have in the past. But as this goes down through the generations, um, you know, those investments are going to be eroded, um, some through, uh, you know, care costs. So um, where maybe the, the kind of younger generations feel that they may inherit um, and benefit, actually that's not necessarily going to happen if more and more people are spending more of their um, investments, uh, you know, to fund their care. At, you know, at this point and, um, you know, in, in the future. So I do think more people will become more specialised because it's going to become more and more of an issue. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would agree with that again. And, um, you know, just we, we are doing what we can to, we do we run training courses for, to help advisors get the qualification that, that Tracy referenced there. Um, so, so we're doing what we can to get more advisors. I think it's difficult there are very few advisors that do, you know, advise purely on care and do nothing else because, you know, it, it's actually probably quite tough and quite difficult to, to make a, you know, a, a decent living out of it, if you like. So I think there's only a little handful that's purely specialised and do nothing else but, um, but long-term care. Um, so if you are going to specialise, you probably need that transition. And that's, that's what we kind of do, encourage advisors to get the qualifications so they're ready if their clients um, come to them, you know, and with, as Tracy has said, the um, the ageing population, that's going to happen more and more. So caveat to all, this is obviously the COVID problem that we've got at the moment, uh, and there are the issues in care homes. But 
Um, if more and more people are going to come to them and say, you know, well, it, it, even if it's sons and daughters as power of attorney, you know, mum or dad's gone into care, it's costing over a thousand pounds a week. What do we do? Because as Tracy has said, they're worried about in, inheritances and things like that. You know, what, what's going to happen? They might be relying on that money. So, um, yeah, more, more advisors um, getting qualified, being confident and comfortable and competent to be able to advise um, potential clients of, of all their options, you know, and max, making sure they maximise what they are entitled to, even if they have to pay for the care themselves, make sure they get what they're entitled to from the state, things like attendance allowance, um, you know, non-means tested benefit, make sure that, you know, have they had an assessment for continuing healthcare through the NHS, all that sort of stuff. So so that, that's what advisors need to be, you know, following that process to make sure um, that, that people, you know, are aware, aware of everything they're entitled to, I suppose. And then they've got the regulated part to that advice of looking at how are we going to deal with the care funding? Is it going to be investments? Is it going to be a care annuity or, or whatever? I was just going to say there, I completely agree. I think it's really important um, that we bring in kind of where I started bringing all the family and you're having those conversations I mean, where possible uh, with your your clients, with their um, their children and understanding kind of both sides because I think um, there is that perhaps at, at this point the concern as you say as, as Graham was saying from um, children who feel that um, their parents may be spending their inheritance as such in their long-term care but it's what's right for that person and and if the children can see uh, you know the options that are available for their parents for themselves in the future then they'll understand why perhaps it's more important to set aside some assets or, you know, use the available products. And perhaps even that would encourage uh, more people to consider pre-funding um, for, you know, I'm talking going forward 10, 20 years, um, you know, the, the children of, of, I guess, of our clients today who would see why it would be a good idea to pre-fund sort of long-term care and for the future where um, sort of our clients might have those assets that they can use at this point, but it's understanding whether they want to go into a care home, whether they would prefer to have care at home, whether they would like to downsize to fund better care. You know, it's, it's just making them aware of all the options that are available and understanding what's right for them, because it's not a, you know, it's not a sort of one size fits all. There's, different um, options available and they all come at different costs and yeah and it's just making sure that they all understand it and in you know in some families there are uh, the younger generation who actually want to perhaps look after their parents I mean, my my own mum has kind of said I've got a 93 year old grandmother she lives on her own um in, in a bungalow with, with no care at this point um but a couple of times she's been unwell and my mum has moved in with her so that, you know, she can just look after her because, you know, she feels that that's what her mum would want. And, yeah, and it's just understanding that for each family situation. And exactly as Graham said, it's making sure that us sort of, as advisors have the knowledge and the competence um, and the compassion to go out and speak to our clients um, and their families about the situation as a whole. Sure. And as we... I mean, as we all know, there is a um, concern that, you know, there is a growing advice gap in the UK. Um, 
So is there a worry, you know, that with COVID highlighting just how important it is to plan for future care costs that, you know, actually people that will need help won't have access to or just won't be able to afford advice to um, kind of figure this out? Well, I think I think that's a possibility. It's, it's interesting that in, in, in the Care Act, which came in in April 2015, there is reference to the fact that, you know, councils are meant to... Uh, help and encourage people and support them regardless of how much money they've got and part of that help is um, potentially uh, signposting if you like to um, to get they won't signpost an individual advisor but to say look you might like to go and speak to a you know a specialist advisor that's got knowledge you know they need to have a qualification because that's referenced as well that they need to be uh, qualified to to advise on long-term care so it's kind of already in the legislation, if you like. The trouble is the the, guide, the statutory guidance to the Care Act is 600 pages long, I think. Um, so how many people actually, how many councils even know it's actually there, let alone members of the public? So it's all a bit kind of frustrating in that in that sense and has been for many, many years because I really think that regulated advisors, you know, like Tracy and that, that are qualified in this area can make just such a huge difference to families. You know, that and, and as she said, compassion is it is a key part of it as well. It's not just having the technical knowledge, it's knowing how to deal with people, you know, vulnerable clients, et cetera, in a compassionate way. So just a bit frustrating. We, the financial services and financial advisors have not been more involved in, you know, in helping people in this market. Yeah, I would say um, sort of whatever the government do, they need to make a system that's clear, that's easy to understand and have a, you know, a good campaign around it so that the public know and understand what they'll get from the state and, you know, what is required by themselves, you know, if, if they don't kind of want to, to just um, have what it what is um, provided by the estate and actually what they um, would be entitled to. Uh, because actually, you know, if you've got savings above 23,250, you're going to have to fund um, your care. And, you know, that, that doesn't sound like a significant amount of money. Uh, so, you know, so people just need to be mindful. And as Graham says, it's, you know, it's, um, it's far from clear. And, you know, going back to the, the comment about the cap on costs, that, you know, that is um, not inclusive of, of the hotel costs as uh, Graham said, so whatever happens going forward, any reform has just got to be clear, um, open, easy to understand, and you know, and, and something that, that individuals can understand. Uh, maybe even even without advice, you're absolutely right that the advice gap is um, is is wide, and um, you know, without some some sort of help, it's just gonna it's gonna widen, and it's it's always those people that in a lot of ways could really benefit more from um, advice who can't necessarily afford it. So there needs to be more options available, more guidance um, and, you know, access to advice, preferably. Sure. And I thought we could um, finish off with the million dollar question um, as to what reforms you would like to actually see come through from government. Um, Graham, shall we start with you? Um, I, I think one of the thing, one of the suggestions I've seen that, uh, among the many many um, ideas and thoughts that have been put forward over over the last few years um, it is one of the things that's been suggested is um, with pension freedoms you know you've got access to your pension fund and you can take money out of that fund um, 
if they, um, again, this might sound a bit complicated, but if they allow people to take money out of that fund, you know, if they haven't done anything with it, um, or, or there's still quite a, you know, some money left in the fund when they get to the point where they need care, if money is taken out from the fund on a tax, so no marginal rate of tax to pay, and that money is then used to help that individual fund their care. And also, if they took a lump sum out of the fund that bought, because that could still be an open-ended situation, you could still get through the whole fund. If you took a lump sum out and bought and purchased a uh, an immediate care annuity, that would then cap the cost for you. So you then got that certainty over the your pension fund is then not going to run out. You, obviously, you've got to have enough money to be able to do that. And some people might argue, well, you're only protecting the wealthy by doing that. I, I don't know. You, it gets a bit too political. That's the problem with a lot of these things. So, um, you know, that that would I think that would be a really good way. I care ISAs, I can't because I can see the, the, the idea behind it. But it, to me, it's, you know, it's, it's not a significant enough amount of money for people to be able to um, to build up a pot that would, would fund that care. So, Sure. And what about you, Tracy? That's a, a really difficult one. Any reform, I think, has just has got to be clear. I think a cap, um, but a clear cap, a cap on this is the maximum that you will pay um, over time, you know, including hotel costs. They're not necessarily that easy to um, to factor in because there are different costs depending on uh, the type of um, care you need, home you go into, um, all of that. I think yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see what the government come out with. But whatever they do, I think I've just got to reiterate that it's got to be something that's easy to understand um, and a, a big campaign to make it clear. And, uh, you know, sort of it's got to be transparent. It's got to be easily understood. Sure. Well, I guess that seeing as we're already midway through November, I don't think we'll be getting anything this year. Um, no. As promised. <laughs> Um, so I guess I have to just watch this space. Um, and how about powers of attorney? Are they important to have um, with social care and the costs that come with it? I think powers of attorney are really important. Uh, and I don't think people give em enough thought to them until it's too late. And, uh, you know, I think sadly, we've we've all seen Kate Garraway um, as an example in in, in the press, she's going through an awful situation, months of um, sadly her husband, Derek, um, being caught by um, COVID and hospitalised for, for this long period of time. Um, but the reason why I'm kind of mentioning her in particular is she's been again in the press recently um, about the fact that she's struggling to deal with their finances because a lot of things were in Derek's name and she um, doesn't have access to the information quite rightly because she's not legally entitled to and she doesn't have a power of attorney. So it's something that I think we should all consider uh, thinking about for the future is is powers of attorney uh, for your sort of finance um, and for your health and welfare. And, you know, in, in this sort of situation and going forward, uh, if you think that uh, your, uh, your family member, uh, whether that's spouse or parents um, or, or even, a, a, you know, sort of a wider relative, um, uncle, auntie, uh, is, you know, likely to, to need some form of care in the future, it, it's worth having that conversation with them um, to talk about powers of attorney. It's something that you know as, as, as advisors we we try and address every time we speak to our clients do you have a, a power of attorney do you have a will um, and it's it's you know really important because 
getting a power of attorney in place is much simpler, much more straightforward than leaving it too late and having to go to the court of protection. I'd absolutely yeah. agree with all of that. Um, it's, it is hugely important. I, I, the example I always use with, with advisors is, I, I um, Tracy mentioned the Kate Garraway situation, which is obviously more topical at the moment, but I, I actually uh, use the Michael Schumacher story. Um, yeah. I know it's in the UK, but it's the same principle. Michael Schumacher, you know, I say to advisors, how many of your clients do Formula One racing driving? And they said, I think I have had a couple that said, yes, I've got one that does it, which is quite interesting. But then they so no one usually has. And then I say, well, how many of them go? How many of your clients go skiing every year? And uh, oh, yeah, virtually all of them. So um, and that's what happened with Schumacher. He, he didn't I don't think he had any bad accidents, but he then went skiing, had a really bad accident, lost lost capacity. And the family, I know it's not UK, but it's the same principle. The family didn't have power of attorney. And they it, it was in the, it, this. This was a few years ago. You know, they said it's just been an absolute nightmare trying to do anything. And that's and, and even, you know, you know, advisors have told me stories where they've turned up to meetings about care funding with powers of attorney, sons and daughters. Sons and daughters start saying what they're going to do with this, that and the other with mum or dad's uh, assets. And the advisors say, well, where's your authority to do it? And they've actually been told, well, I don't need that because it's my mum or my dad. I can do what I like. And well, actually, you can't, you know. So it's just a lack of understanding. Again, I think it's an education thing that's needed to say, and as Tracy said, how hugely important it is because it's a nightmare to deal with the court protection and it costs a lot of money as well. It costs a lot more money to go through the court protection, um, you know, on a, on a you know, de de dealing with everything every day because they tend to use panel solicitors and all that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a very costly exercise if you haven't got a power of attorney, even though you might have to spend a couple hundred quid on putting the power of attorney to, you know, in place with a, with a, uh, with a solicitor or whatever. Um, but you can you can actually do them yourself. You can go through the government's website and do your own power attorney if you want. And then you've only got £82 registration costs. So hugely, hugely important. Yes, definitely. Brilliant. Well, Tracy, Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you for joining us again. I am now joined by senior reporters Rachel Mortimer and Imogen Chu to have a chat about the big stories this week. So it's been a busy couple of weeks for the FCA's newly joined chief executive who has made uh, a number of public appearances and shared some insight into the coming months at the regulator. So Rach, what are the main points being flagged by Nikhil Rati? Yeah, so he um, had a couple of public appearances um, last week. One um, was a speech that he gave um, to other regulators. Another was an appearance on the FCA's own podcast. I think probably the biggest point um, that he sort of really wanted to drum home was the inevitable fact that firms will be failing in the next couple of months uh, following the sort of impact of the second wave of the virus. It might be a coincidence, but I think that the language that he's using as well, even in the space of a week, certainly became uh, a bit more urgent. And whereas before the FCA has always said it's inevitable that firms will fail, uh, that sort of move from some firms are likely to fail in the coming months to a significant number of firms will fail um, it's sort of towards the end of the year and the beginning of next. So it certainly becomes seems to be becoming uh, much more of, of a reality. Um, we know from his appearance in front of the Treasury Select Committee a couple of weeks ago 
that uh, he expects the second lockdown to have a particularly testing impact on small advice firms and SIP providers. Um, so that's certainly something that's really relevant to, to the industry that that our readers and listening uh, are involved, listeners are involved with. Um, and actually, he's being really open and honest, and he's not really pulling any punches here. When he was on the FCA's own podcast, he said that the FCA wasn't a zero failure regulator, uh, as firms under its watch sort of risk succumbing to the financial pressures of the crisis. And he said these firms didn't operate in a vacuum or were subject to the same economic forces as any other business. So he's being really realistic about it and certainly not trying to uh, sugarcoat the situation. Sure. And what have like advisors have to say about this? Have they come out and said anything? So one of the most controversial comments Mr. Rati has made in the last couple of weeks was two MPs at that uh, Treasury Select Committee that I just mentioned, where he set the timeline for a solution to the ongoing FSCS levy and professional indemnity insurance uh, problem as a couple of years away. Uh, And this was backed up by Charles Randall, the chairman of the FCA, also agreed with that timeline. That has prompted quite a strong response uh, from advisors who we have spoken to, who have uh, made the very good point that actually in a couple of years, a lot of the smaller advice firms who are really suffering as a result of these rising regulatory costs and insurance premiums may not be around to benefit from any sort of solution. Um, I mean, certainly whilst I've been been, uh, covering this topic, this seems to have been one of the biggest concerns of advisors in the last couple of years. And in that time, the FCA keeps saying that it's on its agenda and it's working to find a solution. So, yeah, I mean, given that the this was all sort of prompted and came to the forefront of advisors to do lists, perhaps some would argue from the increase of the FOS compensation limit last year, we're looking at about three or four year turnaround for a solution from the regulator on this Uh, and I think that came as a huge disappointment to some advisors. Sure and I guess with like Covid as well it doesn't help you know they're struggling with Covid and you know making money back and getting clients in and then you know whacking massive fees on top it's just kind of a lose-lose situation I can't see how it's going on. Yeah it's certainly been described as a sort of perfect storm especially given the impact of, of, of the crisis now as well. Yeah, I definitely think Rach is right as well in that um, the main bugbear for advisors really is that the regulator was warned about the impact the FOS compensation hike would have on PI costs. And um, and it's still kind of saying that, oh, the, the, the solution's two, three years away, when realistically there was a warning before it happened. There's been multiple um, discussions with the regulator about what it's doing to the industry since it's happened. And it's kind of only now when, as Rachel describes it, the perfect storm is hitting, that there's even any kind of timeline being given. So I think that's actually the, the main kind of point that advisors are upset about. Mm, yeah. And um, Amy, wasn't there like a big upset in the tech world as well? Yeah, so um, the Office of Tax Simplification published its report about capital gains tax last week. Um, It was a pretty quick turnaround for um, such a report, which I don't know, some analysts are taking to kind of mean that um, there's been pressure from the Chancellor to get this, um, get the review of capital gains tax out quite quickly. so, I don't know, we'll see what that means in terms of whether any changes go ahead. 
But yeah, so essentially the OTS found the current CGT structure distorted behavior and was often counterintuitive with odd incentives. For example, um, it said that the annual allowance in capital gains tax that you get was meant to be kind of like an administration thing, basically, which means that if enough people fall underneath it, there's less admin for the consumer in terms of tax reliefs and there's less admin for HMRC. Um, but what's happened is that you see uh, the majority of people filing their tax returns just below the limit. So it's not a case of kind of an administration thing. It's actually acting like more of a relief and it's distorting investor behavior. Um, so they suggested that uh, a greater alignment of rates between income tax and the tax paid on capital gains uh, would help this because it basically stop any benefits you got from capital gains. Um, it also suggested uh, lowering the annual allowance. So basically more people would pay capital gains. The suggestion that um, Rishi has sort of pushed through this review, is that in the sense of it's the counterbalance crisis spending? Yeah, exactly. So um, he commissioned this review in July. So a couple of months into the coronavirus crisis when yeah. you know, he was looking at, at the 200 billion pounds hole <laughs> in the public finances and thinking how are we going to balance these books yeah. um it's probably one of the more politically acceptable taxes to raise it's often kind of seen as a tax on the wealthy because you're basically being taxed on um stuff that is gained in value which is normally like investments uh, your uh, initial residence is uh, exempt from it so it's like people with like second homes and investments outside of ISA limits and stuff that are going to be hit so the majority of people don't pay capital gains tax right so like I think that's why he's looking into it it's uh, politically acceptable and yeah as you say he's looking at um, this massive hole in the public finances. I mean the OTS is normally quite um, influential but do you reckon the government will actually listen to it because obviously they can just ignore this? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say whether they'll take what the OTS is recommending in this report it is pretty radical. It would be a complete overhaul and it would basically change the role kind of capital gains tax plays in um, investor behaviour, particularly at the moment. So whether they take um, it as a whole or whether they kind of take maybe one part of it, maybe they just reduce the allowance, um, for example, and that would kind of bring in um, maybe a few more billion to the exchequer um, is obviously, you, who knows what what, uh, what Rishi will decide to do. But um, it's definitely, I think just the timing of it, the quick turnaround and against the backdrop we're in, I would say that you people should be expecting kind of a, a change here. Sean, what, what do advisors have to say about it? So in general, advisors have been, um, I would say, negative about a change uh, to the capital <laughs> in, <tax>. one <laughs> yeah, in one word in one word yeah not loving it um but I think they understand um why Rishi Sunak is looking at this tax and the need for reform um of tax in general um advisors can be quite critical of the current CGT structure is very, very confusing. There's four different tax rates, depending on whether you're a higher income payer or a lower income payer, whether you're paying it on property or not. So it is a really confusing tax. And I think any simplification of it would be welcome. Um, 
but I believe that a lot of people think that the gains you make from investing, you should be taxed less because you're taking an element of risk, whereas income is steady and it's not very risky, so you're taxed higher. Um, if there's no incentive for people to invest, then where do companies get their investment from? Because it, and you'll you only do that because you get some kind of benefit from it, which is the lower tax rates. So there's questions over kind of how effective it will be and whether investors will just stop and therefore the exchequer will get even less money. One really interesting point, though, and to end on a positive, is that. Um, a couple of people have t- said it's just a really great opportunity for advisors to loop back in with their clients, provide that value that they're so keen to show, um, you know, discuss through all the really important parts of the pa- of the planning process, like inheritance tax and gifting, and um, you know your your kind of structure for the year on when you're going to get rid of gains, and it's a really good opportunity to kind of like touch back in with your clients on this they're going to be reading about it in the newspapers so like take the initiative to get in touch now really and show that value sure so all change in the tax world yeah <laughs> thank you uh, for listening to the FT advisor podcast tune in next week for the next episode support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.